Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Tina Quinn. This week we have a very special conversation with the journalist and co-creator of the ABC's investigative series Exposed. The second series has just finished being broadcast. It's been a forensic and damning look at the fatal fire of the ghost train at Luna Park. The fire, which took place in 1979, killed seven people, six of them children. Over the years, there have been many whispers about the fire, which was at the time quickly explained away as an electrical fire or possibly the cause of a stray cigarette. The second series of Exposed, however, has told a story of a tragedy that is deep with grief and pain to this day, and perhaps an even deeper cover-up. Joining us to talk about Exposed, we are very fortunate to have Caro Meldrum-Hanner in studio with us. Caro is a five-times Walkley, 12-times Kennedy and multiple Quills Award-winning journalist. Let me know if I've left anything out there. She has, of course, worked on ABC's Four Corners, breaking many big stories, and as mentioned, is the co-creator of Exposed. Caro, welcome back to Fourth Estate. Thank you so much for having me. The first series of Exposed certainly made a huge impact with the incredible story of Kelly Lane. Mm. I was gripped. I've watched it numerous times. Um, when it it's came, one to, of those ones you can watch yeah, numerous times. I kept telling are, people about it and going, "You have to watch it," and I'd watch it with them. <laughs> you know? Good, good on you, because yeah. you learn a little bit more every time. I mean, mm-hmm. even myself now, when I watch it back, sometimes I mean, of course, you cringe and you, you know totally rip apart your own work, but you you get another little insight or another little penny drops. That's what I love about that. And, and I love the process of people exploring a case or a matter they were involved in and learning things for themselves that they didn't know. Yeah, absolutely. When I mean, especially with that case in particular, I think it's one that I think if you're from Sydney at least mm. um, or, or grew up around Sydney, you really, I mean, everybody knows that case. And it was very much a trial by media at the time and, and very much framed in misogyny. And I think it really broke down a lot of the preconceptions that I sort of already had of Kelly Lane and that whole case that was in my head. And I think it did I think it did so for a lot of people. You really gave do you feel you really gave voice to this woman? I do. Uh, she certainly hadn't been heard from at the trial. She had accepted the advice of her counsel, which was not to take the the stand and not to be examined, that it would be possibly too dangerous for her. She wanted to take the stand at her trial, but she didn't. And of course, throughout the process of the coronial inquest and elsewhere, she she did not give an interview to the media. She never, ever spoke. And I think that also fed into this absolutely ferocious hunger and appetite and then a little bit of darkness, I guess, in the response from the media. You know, I I think when someone does knock back interview requests and and doesn't talk, it can encourage Mm. a far more critical eye uh, and sometimes that silence is perceived as guilt and certainly when the media doesn't get what it it Mm. wants, then... A, a narrative does narrative, start. Yeah, yeah, it does start to form because what do you do in the face of a closed door? Mm. You go harder usually. You, you certainly don't become more sympathetic. You ask more and more questions because you can't get to the subject that can give you the answers. So that that's natural and that's normal. And I'm not. I guess I'm not criticising the media for that, because daily coverage has to be done. And mm-hmm. if the subject isn't talking, you have an enormous amount of limitations. 
But she was a deeply misunderstood mm. young woman and that continued throughout the inquest and the trial, never hearing from her. She had a story to tell and it's incredibly sad and also very odd that, mm. that, that that story was only being told from a prison cell after a verdict had, had come down, that she had just never spoken before. So it was very difficult. We obviously wanted to interview her inside prison, but uh, New South Wales Corrections denied us that mm -hmm. access. They essentially, they wouldn't meet with us at all. We asked for a meeting to even discuss it. And it was just an absolute blanket no. Um, I think because she was too high profile, right. I guess. But we've seen prisons allow access for other interviews. Mm -hmm. So it was an, it, it's an interesting decision. Uh, and I hope, well, I certainly learnt a lot more about her. Mm-hmm. I learnt that of a path for a very young girl who was falling pregnant and had no one to talk to and her only out, her only solution was concealment mm. and that around her, I mean, she's been painted as a, as a serial liar and she told umpteen lies. Mm. They were all designed to protect not only her privacy but the privacy of others, the privacy of the men who got her pregnant, her parents and the future of all of those people and how they'd be perceived in the community. It wasn't just about her. Uh, and, you know, she was also a young woman who was schooled in the only way to be was to be a winner. There was no time for vulnerability. There was no time for weakness. And there was no chat about this stuff at home. So she was on her own and the mistakes and the bad decisions and then the white lies became bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. She... Um, but she was a warm person mm. and I thought over the months of production as I was asking her more and more questions and we had so many conversations on the phone and it was all about her calling me. I couldn't call her mm -hmm. so we didn't know whenever she was going to call. I thought, you know, I was asking her so many questions about her private life, mm -hmm. about her sex life. You know, sometimes I thought, oh, gosh, you know. I'm going to ask you some questions and they're very private. Especially when there'd been so much speculation yes. as, as it was about her sex That's life. That's right. Her sex life was on trial. Yeah, exactly. That I, you know, felt, oh gosh, I'm sort of asking her these questions as well. But it was this a process of trying to understand mm -hmm. her and a process of trying to understand what had been reported. And it, I thought, look, she's just going to have enough of this. Mm. She's just going to not call. You know, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I've been through all of this. Why are you asking about my sex life and who I who I remember sleeping with and who it could possibly be? Um, and she'd been so slut-shamed, I guess. Mm -hmm. But she kept on calling. She kept on calling and she kept opening herself to any question that I, I might ask. And nothing was off limits from her parents, her family, the daughter that she kept, mm -hmm. the children that she'd given up, jobs, careers, boyfriends, sport, everything. Everything was 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 uh, I, I could ask about anything. Well, I certainly want to uh, touch on uh, a little later on about uh, when it comes to building that sort of rapport and building those relationships that you obviously have to do in the sort of work that you're doing. Mm. It's very specialised. But w what strikes me about that uh, that first series of Exposed that also really struck me with the second series, you really uh, painted this. It was like another character in the program was the actual, the setting, the location, the insular peninsula mm. and you know, the northern beaches. You really captured it and the, the culture, the, the, the lifestyle. Because um, if you can't understand place, yes. you can't understand person. Absolutely, absolutely. Is where I come from. If you don't, if you aren't it sophisticated in your thinking to immerse yourself in that, 
you don't you don't really have much of a chance of getting into their head mm. if you don't know their place. Well, you do a fantastic job of it with in, in the second series as well. Again, painting late 1970s Sydney. Again, it's like that other character in the program and you seem to really understand and do a really good job of, of, of setting the scene and, and, you know, taking us there. When it came to finding a story for the second series, mm. how did you come to investigate the Lunar Park ghost train fire and, and why? Well, this one, um, for Kelly Lane, that came about through a, a USB stick and a letter arriving on my desk at work from right. Kelly Lane. She'd written to me. She'd been watching my programs. From, on Four Corners. Yeah, right. from prison. And she said, that's the girl for me to have a look at her matter. Um, so whether that's a compliment or not, I don't know. But I would take it as well. We, we <laughs> made sure that the letter was correct. I actually thought it was someone having a hoax. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was Kelly Lane. I think, why would Kelly Lane ever write to me? But anyway, that story came to me. She mm-hmm. contacted me and said, hey, come and have a look at my story. I'm innocent. And I said, okay, I'm going to test your claims. So that's how the series one came about. At series two, the ghost train fire was very different. This came about through my producer and co-creator, Jaya Belendra. And Jaya is a just a, a connoisseur of people and relationships. And she's had a really remarkable and a long career in, in television production and documentaries. And she has a really amazing network in the arts mm-hmm. because she used to run the arts um, department certainly part of it for the ABC years ago when we did have an arts section, mm-hmm. specialised section. So Jaya Belendra, the producer, knew of Martin Sharp, knew peripher- peripherally, I think, of his obsession with the Lunar Park Ghost Train Fire. But through one of her close friends in the arts world, after season one with Kelly Lane, this close friend of Jaya said, you've got to have a look at the Ghost Train Fire. I knew Martin. He has this amazing estate He's passed away, but he collected everything, more than anyone else has. He believed, went to his grave, believing that this was just the most shocking miscarriage of justice and cover-up. He never could prove it. He couldn't get to certain people. You guys should have a look. So Jaya came to me and told me all about it. And this fire happened before I was born. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have a touch point to it. Um, and I cer- certainly did not have a great knowledge of it at all. D- did you grow up hearing about the, the – did, did you grow up hearing the story I, about it? Yeah, I knew I there'd been a did. terrible fire. Yeah. I knew that people had died. I knew that Luna Park had shut down because mm. when I was a child, Luna Park went – as I was growing up, Luna Park went through the, the, the open, closed, yes. open, closed. Yes, that's what I remember, yeah. And it was sort of heartbreaking as mm. a little girl. You'd mm. want to go back down to Luna Park because I grew up on the lower North Shore. Right. So – in my early childhood. So we'd go to Luna Park all the time whenever it was open and then it would shut down. It'd be, oh, why can't we go to Luna Park? You know, so there was something off. There was something mm-hmm. obviously weird, a tussle going on over this beautiful piece of land in this mm-hmm. crazy place. So it just took a little bit of scratching. We've got the initial access to Martin Sharp's incredible estate. And we went up to that room an investigative journalist jackpot, I'm guessing. It, it was, but it was also, you know, I think the sweat, the beads of sweat were sort of forming <laughs> on my brow when I was walked into the ghost train room at Wirian at Martin Sharp's right. be- big, beautiful house um, in the eastern suburbs and was taken up there by Jason Holman, one of the survivors, and walked right. into this room and it's wall to wall, ceiling to floor of all sorts of stuff. 
that he'd collected all sorts of reports, photos. He'd been taping people. He had morgue reports. You know, there were ash, you know, Luna Park ashtrays, ash all sorts of memorabilia, newspaper clippings, just totally overwhelming, but yes, an absolute jackpot. Now, other journalists had had access to lots of parts of that material, mm-hmm. but certain parts of it had only come into this estate after Martin Sharp's passing that he right. kept off-site. Um, and other t- and ta- the tape certainly had had hadn't been accessed. So we were getting some things that were new and fresh, other things that journalists had had a go at before. Um, so it was that that his tapes. He'd been recording all these conversations mm-hmm. for decades, and then it was just the initial phone calls, right? Because for something like this, the tyranny of time sets in. It's a forty-two-year-old event. There's going to be a significant portion of people here who have passed away. Mm-hmm. Then there's going to be a significant significant portion of people who are aged and whose memories may have been affected, you know, dementia, several people, Alzheimer's, you name it, mm. um, strokes. So there was that too. And then there were people who have just disappeared. You can't find name changes. A schoolgirl at 16 who was there at Luna Park on the night, is she going to have the same name 42 years later? Is this the daughter of... Um her father was somewhat shady, I think, was described as not quite a, a nice man by one of the uh, the mothers. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the one who had been told uh, not, not to, to go, go to, to Luna, Luna Park. Park that night. Yeah, That's yeah, right. Yeah. Well, her father had passed away. Yeah. Um, so, But we found sort of a core group. We realised, all right, a lot of people are going to be missing. Mm-hmm. Mm. A lot of people's memories are affected. But then we just literally mm. tracked down every person we could possibly find who was there that night. We went and got all sorts of documents from the coroner's court. We were going to state libraries. We were going to state archives. We were going to Canberra, all sorts of, mm-hmm. you know, places where documents and records are kept. We were popping in FOIs um, and just trying to draw as much as we could from anywhere. And we built, as we always, well, I always do, an enormous chronology. Mm-hmm. It's an enormous timeline, hundreds and hundreds of pages, mm-hmm. and an enormous characters list. And from there, we, we were making the first phone calls, and it was universal. And I've said this before, and I, I might sound like a broken record saying it again, but it hasn't happened for me before working on an investigation. Right. It's that, you know, the first time when you call a, a person and a hopeful interviewee, mm-hmm. and you tell them who you are, and you ask them, were you, say, there that night, or have I got the right person? And it was this... <gasps> Oh my God, I've been waiting for this call for 40 years. Really? It was all of, and then often tears. I was never heard. And that was happening frequently. Frequently. Frequently with these first calls. It was, wow. Okay, so people are feeling not heard. Mm. People Mm. are describing being voiceless. People are describing being fobbed off. People are describing being not heard by the police. So it was, okay. But the police said this was an electrical fault. This was just a terrible accident. That This has been investigated exhaustively. So why are people saying this to us? What's going on here? And off we went. Right. And what, can I ask, what year did you start, for instance? What month and year did you start uh, investigating this Looking series? at this. Looking at this. I, I can't give that to you off the top of my head. I'd have to go back through my phone. But um, how, how not that my phone taken? would tell me because the recent calls don't go far, that right. far back. It took... <laughs> In a production sense, yes. and certainly slowed down by COVID because right. there was a long period of time where we actually couldn't get to people to interview. Right. And you can't do... And I'm sure people also passed away in the midst they of... They did. Yeah, yeah. And you can't do investigative, deep interviews where you're showing them documents, mm. 
because it's very hands-on, mm. the interviews that I do. I love doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it engages your interviewee. It gets them in, in control and, and engaging with their own narrative. So it's, you can't do that on Zoom. You mm-hmm. can't say, now, I'd now like you to turn to page 85 of this report. Did you, can you read that out loud mm-hmm. for us? Did you know that information? What do you think of that? Mm-hmm. You can't do any of that on a Zoom. No. So we we had to wait. So to answer your question, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here. <laughs> it, it would have been around 18 months okay. production time with only very short bursts of filming through that. Right. When we could have a crew and we'd lock in the filming weeks. What's so special about Exposed, both series, uh, is that it's an extensive look at your investigation, but... It, it obviously doesn't show the level of research and mm, digging no. that, that you and your, uh, your no. producing partner <laughs> no. went through. You know, it, 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 Tell us about some of those long days and, and the level of work required, most of it mm. unseen, to, to bring an investigation like this to TV screens. Well, when we set about making Exposed, certainly in the first series, we wanted to show, mm-hmm. uh, do a little bit of a turn the camera on the journalism yeah. to see what it takes. But... In the end, there's only so many failed phone calls and days and weeks of it got to the point of going through phone books. Right. Are you going to really show a frame of that? Mm. But you record it, it gets in, you know, and then it disappears out of the system. It's because we're not going to use it. But this was like, um, and I've got my, no one can see this right now, but I've, I've closed my eyes and I've got my hands like pressing into my temples because it was just so unbelievably exhausting this. Right. It was I'm sure it takes over your life. Like it you does. feel it's all possessed. Day, it's all day yeah. and night. It's yeah. seven days a week because you've got these families involved. Mm. You know, they they have said yes to this. You've got their consent, which is very important mm-hmm. for us. We set out to get consent mm-hmm. straight away from from the families of the victims. They they ha- they had to have the purpose with us. So it, trying to find, you know, we had this giant sort of matrix mm-hmm. and this system of trying to find people. We'd go through all c- certain databases and we'd be going over to the electoral rolls to look them up physically. We'd go to libraries to then look, going through reams mm-hmm. of the old electoral rolls on microfiche with the rulers, trying to f- track changes of name, changes of address. Because we're talking about something 42 years ago. There's people, people these people aren't on Facebook. Mm. And so, and police, a lot of police aren't on Facebook. So it was just absolutely exhausting. Um, You're using every database possible in this triangulation method. So we became like these um, people hunters, Mm. first of all, just hunting the actual person, trying to find the actual person. And then it's the task of speaking to them, understanding their story, seeing if they'll go on camera. So it was, um, the research for this was like no other, really. At, at the heart of the story for series two is is the death of seven people, mm. five of them young boys. Uh, the level of grief at the heart of the story is enormous. These people that really should be grandparents, but they're not mm. grandparents mm. because they lost their children when, when they were children before they were able to grow up and have a life. So it's like these grandparents that never came to be mm. that are sitting here with their memories. You know, it was incredibly stirring for me. Tell us how you approached telling the story of each of them because Exposed tells their story of how they found themselves inside the ghost ride, but the ground you tread on is filled with so much pain still Mm. uh, with the families and the survivors. So to tell these stories 
as I mentioned before, you must have built a very high level of trust with the families. Mm. I'm interested in the path that you you first have to travel down before telling the victims' stories. Um, it, it does sound like a lot of them were very, as you said, felt fobbed off, felt ignored, felt mm. didn't feel heard. So were anxious and in some ways to speak. Mm. But there's still a, a certain level of trust that you have to build with these Definitely. families to get what you ended up getting out of them. Well, there, it's a really good question. Uh, th- and there were several things at play at the same time. So you have you have the families who've lost their children or the surviving siblings mm. who've lost their brothers. Mm-hmm. So they're one set. And over the years, they have either become hardened or hopeless mm-hmm. and despairing. They have been made promises by journalists before that they will get the answers, expose people, and that didn't come to fruition. And they've also, that you know, they would describe to me experiences of opening the newspaper and seeing an article that they had no idea was coming, they had never been contacted about, and the trauma that that caused was almost, it was like they were back there that night. Mm-hmm. So, you know... There's there's the broadsheet or there's the tabloid and this story has come out of the blue about someone has said something they don't know it's coming and they are immediately it's it's sort of like nervous shock, and, and that was quite, all of them were saying the same thing about that mm-hmm. that the most disturb upsetting and painful thing the thing that sets them off over all these decades was seeing stuff in newspapers that they didn't mm-hmm. know was coming and that the, the journalists didn't have the decency to just call them, and say hey. I'm not asking for an interview with you, but I just want to let you know there's something in the newspaper tomorrow. So that was happening. So you have the families over here, here, and then you have the the Luna Park staffers and people who are riding the train that night, and they are, in their minds, they're, they're saying, look, I'll participate, but I don't want to upset the families. I don't want to cause them any more pain or grief. Do they know it's the series is happening? How can you prove that to me? Um, so you have that issue at play and then that they're telling their own story. What do I tell my workplace? No one knows that I was there that night. I'm going to feel really vulnerable. Are people going to judge me? Should I be afraid about what, there was a lot of fear, particularly for witnesses who'd seen and heard things, the bikies, the arson, the kerosene, the matches, that was really big. Am I going to be safe? I've been looking over my shoulder for 40 years. I still fear for my life. I've never spoken publicly. Am I going to be safe? How, how can you make me feel safe? What, what? There was that. And then there was the police that you're dealing with. And, and phone calls to either or could set off a chain reaction of people calling other people or people messaging mm-hmm. other people and saying, don't do this, do do this. Mm-hmm. So you had to manage everyone absolutely individually and respectfully. And the way that we managed that was total transparency and honesty. This is what the show is all about. This is how long we think it's going to go for. What do you want? Because this is your story. It's not ours. What do you want? You talk about the parents, you've witnesses and survivors. You talk about what do you want for them? Families, what do you want? This is going to be extremely painful, but what can you see coming from this? So if you could understand everyone's, you know, desire then and understand that it was their story and they knew that it was their story to tell and you had parameters. So we'd stop during interviews if people were were becoming e- extremely emotional or, right. or unsteady. We weren't under any time limit. We could speak for seven hours sort of thing. So 
it was really just absolute honesty, transparency, respect, and sitting down with people beforehand and having a long conversation about what this really mm-hmm. entailed. And the negative parts of it too, that after this, you could receive some abusive phone calls. Mm-hmm. You could receive some threatening messages, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just this is what could happen. And I do find that often as journalists, there is really the temptation to shadow and conceal the negative blowback Mm -hmm. and really pump up the positive reasons Mm -hmm. to do something. And then when that negative blowback occurs, it's so damaging for the people in your show or who you've interviewed because you didn't give them, they didn't have a heads up about it. It all seems sort of rosy for them. So just honesty, transparency and and relationship building, spending Mm -hmm. time with people. You know, we're going into people's homes. I think we can also often forget that. We're not paying people. They're not Mm -hmm. getting anything financial out of it. Days and weeks after they're reeling Mm -hmm. from this, they're really disturbed. We we would be receiving calls after our interview saying, I'm having nightmares again. Right. The flashbacks are back. I'm smelling smelling the smoke in the clothes again. I can taste the smoke again. And it it was just, it's very human and very kind and respectful. I, I, I just think that's, as I've kept going in my career and others, it's, it makes such a difference. You know, you're not just in and out of their home for an interview. No. You're with them sort of for a long time, if not forever. They can call you anytime right. and ask them. And I'm guessing the relationships withstand, you know, the actual program, really. They for go sure. further. For sure. Speak to Jenny, Jason. I was mm-hmm. just, uh, just before we began, I was texting Jason. Mm-hmm. He was asking how my week off was. Um, we're, we're all having a reunion lunch. Mm. It's only been a month or yeah. four, three or three, four weeks since it ended, but we're all getting together and having lunch, all the families. Nice. So it's, and that's what you want out of it Yeah. at the end, that you can come together. The fire was 42 years ago and, and the police file was closed very quickly, but you obviously had this entire archive at, at your disposal. You've just unpacked it's not just a compelling story about what happened on that night, but mm. one that, that shows an almost forgotten story of how Sydney once operated. One of corruption from the lowest to the low to the, the highest of levels. Let's start low. Uh, the mm. police are quite key to this story. In 1979, how clean were the police and particularly the New South Wales police? You know, as Wayne Evans, mm-hmm. who is a retired magistrate, Mm. Uh, he formerly was a police prosecutor, so he was with New South Wales Police and he assisted the coroner at inquests, said to me that the it was so dirty that the um, the tendrils of crime and the tentacles of crime had wrapped around your lowly uniformed constable to the High Court and all the way through and between through your various departments, whether they be, you know, arson, special breaking, CIB, you name it, it was just absolutely rife. And he's and I said to him, what does that say about the justice system then with police? And he said it was an absolute joke. And he was a mm. police officer himself at the time. You didn't know who you could trust. And very senior, powerful police officers, assistant commissioners were Dirty, dirty, dirty. As Colin Wedderburn said, another police officer, bad, 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 capable of anything. And I mean anything. That's what he said on camera. You know, we had Assistant Commissioner Bill Allen, Mm -hmm. who was Abe Saffron, the king of the underworld, Mm. working for him on his payroll. And, you know, how 
And if Bill Allen said something, an assistant commissioner to you, and you're, you're underneath mm. him, you bloody well do what he said. So it was absolutely rife, the corruption. Um, I think to an extent a lot of it has been cleaned out, but a lot of the people who were in there and part of that then have most certainly evaded justice and Mm -hmm. detection, and that says a lot. And we're seeing that now with the detective inspector who was in charge of this Lunar Park Ghost Train Fire investigation, this multi-fatality fire, Doug Knight, who got up and told everyone that it was an electrical fault when it bloody well wasn't, and nothing ever happened with him. There has been no retraction of that by New South Wales Police. There has been no apology for that by New South Wales Police, for the suppression of evidence of arson, for the alleged intimidation and bullying of witnesses. It's just as if it's hands over eyes, hands over ears, hands over mouth. It's, it's, but it exists. It's right mm. there. And we have a police officer himself, Colin Wedderburn, who was running the inquest, and Wayne Evans, who've said on camera this guy was a fixer. He accepted money from criminals in order to thwart and corrupt criminal investigations on behalf of the criminals. And all, all the, pat- the pattern is right there for this. The same thing. Delete evidence, withhold evidence, change evidence, intimidate witnesses. And the cast of characters that we found mm. and those witnesses, as I mentioned at the beginning, who'd say, I've been waiting for this call for 40 years and I was silenced, I wasn't heard, I was, you know, fobbed off by the police. They're all there. Yeah. They're right there. They're saying it all fits, this pattern. So what are you going to do about it? Um, you know, and that's not, and that shouldn't be reviewing the ABC or interrogating the ABC series. That should be getting out there and interviewing these witnesses mm. The police should be doing that and they should be meeting with these families, meeting with Jenny Godson, meeting with Jason Holman and and and, and looking into – because if the police investigation was botched, that that's the starting point. Mm. So that's your low point, as you mentioned. That's the absolute starting point. We just can't get away from that. That has to be examined by the police and by others, by a special commission of inquiry. And if the police won't do it, that's when the government has to step in and say, okay, we'll set up a special commission of inquiry to look at this. So that's your starting point, the police. The the state coroner earlier this month indicated that they're open to a new inquest. Uh, Where is this up to and and what are your feelings uh, about whether this will happen? Uh, Do you think – how about a royal commission? What would would your thoughts be on that? Well, in terms of the inquiries, you know, people are calling for all sorts of things – and no one's calling for nothing. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's universal. No one's calling for nothing. Everyone's mm. calling for something. The first one, as you mentioned, is a, is a fresh coronial, coronial mm-hmm. inquest. And look, that would certainly not set a precedent. There's been uh, having multiple inquests into the same matter. There's only ever been one inquest into the ghost train fire. That was 1979. And we know that that was substantially ineffective. Mm-hmm. The New, National Crime, Crime Authority found that because the initial police investigation was so bad, was so poor, was so flawed, was so inadequate, and all the proper systems and procedures weren't followed. So the inquest was just a result of that. But still, that inquest didn't call a, a number of key witnesses. Correct. It was, it's astounding. So, yeah. That's right. So it had those flaws too, mm. that mm. witnesses that should have been heard from weren't. So there's that coronial inquest, which came to an open finding in this strange thing about the cigarette butt, the mm-hmm. toss cigarette butt. Now, there are calls for a fresh coronial inquest, and as I said, that would be no precedent. I mean, for example, there have been, in New South Wales alone, there have been three coronial inquests called into the one matter, um, and that was the death of a Bronwyn Knight. You can correct me if I'm wrong there. She passed. She died in 1973. 
73, that's several years before the 1979 mm-hmm. fire. There's been three coronial inquests for that and mm-hmm. three for other matters too and two for other matters. But there's never been another one for the right. Luna Park fire. And that's a multi-fatality fire. It's not one death, it's seven mm. and six children. So it is high time for another coronial inquest. That's just basic starting point that that should be done. Finally, all those witnesses should be heard from. Let's make it fulsome, proper, and cl- just c- correct the stuff that's there. And obviously the, elect- the, the cigarette butt is – that should probably be readdressed mm, mm. and fix up that, that finding and perhaps refer it back to police. E- easy starting point. The coroner has said that she is considering that. What the coroner has done though is she – instead of calling an inquest, just going, mm-hmm. right, yep, it's there, let's have a fresh inquest, there is fresh new compelling evidence and information – Instead, she's directed it back to New South Wales Police and asked New South Wales Police to review its original investigation. Right. So for the families, well, I have my own thoughts. For the the families, though, and and it's important to communicate them because it's, it's you know, it's their children and, and I'm not their advocate and it's not, it's not my family. So I'm the communicator. They are concerned, several, that this has somehow been passed back to the power and privilege of the exact entity, New South Wales Police, that botched it in the first place and have never considered or taken the time to reinvestigate it and fix it in 42 years and, they're, and now they're being compelled to review their original investigation by the coroner. Now, does that include looking at police corruption? I don't know. That's what the families are asking. Or is it just the police looking over what they did in the beginning and then telling the coroner if they think there should be a new inquest or not? So there's a lot of questions around that mm. process, and I'm not too clear on it, but there are certainly concerns. Like how can this be going back to the very entity mm that botched that it in the beginning. The, these families in the in first the, place. That's yeah, right. And yeah. they feel so duped by them and so misled by New South Wales police. So that's happening. So we'll see where that goes. Did you ever feel throughout your research, you know, you, you mentioned there was a whole cast of characters and especially the Sydney underworld scene at, at that time was was quite colourful and, it, you know, the, the man that ran it all was a guy named Abe Saffron. Uh, did you ever almost get distracted in, I'm, I'm sure there's a number of other things that you uncovered through your research and thought, oh, oh, that's a whole other story into itself. Well, that's a whole, you mm. know, I mean. Uh, lots of things. Lots of things. Like, yep. the, you know, the Juanita Nielsen case ever sort of. Sure, come, yeah, sure. Yeah. And, that, that, and that came up a lot. And, you know, I other bet. fires yeah. and other disappearances mm. and, um, you know, other de- deaths in King's Cross, um, mysterious shootings and business owners, businesses all of a sudden shutting down and moving on. And there were all sorts of things going on. Other police officers, uh, you know, uh, yeah. uh, other criminal matters. That happened all that, – that that does, yes. And you can be – you go, oh, that's interesting. But, you, you know, you, you remain very focused. Right. But just back on those inquiries. So – because I just want to finish it off because mm. it's important. Mm. And I should say that – Assistant Commissioner Mick Fuller, he's most certainly aware of this series. Mm-hmm. I do not know if he has watched it. But he he has demonstrated previously that he has no, uh, no issue um, 
or or great resistance to to re- launching another investigation. You mm. know, he he's reopened cold cases. Mm. We see what he did with Lynette Dawson. Dawson yeah, they searched that. that backyard. Mm. He, he, I, I I do believe that he is a man that can make it happen, mm. and, and that's what these these families are. They're not just asking for it; they're they're bloody begging for mm. it. It's time. So on top of that, then there's the inquest, and that's just one process. Then there is all of the corruption elements above that. uh, You've described it as the lower level police. Then there's above the political corruption and the judicial corruption. And that can't be addressed in an inquest. That has to be addressed in a special commission of inquiry or an inquiry with the powers of a royal commission. And that's what another whole group of people are calling for too, including the parents. First, they want justice to be done on a base level by the police and in the coroner's court, and that really must be done for seven fatalities. Mm-hmm. We know this is an unsolved event, and we know there's witnesses here ready to talk. Then over on the other side, there is much higher level stuff, and that can only be addressed in that form of an inquiry, something with compulsive powers like a royal commission. Well, I'm guessing you're also referring to the Neville Rand connection. Correct. That you, that you Neville Rand, Lionel Murphy, the High yeah. Court judge, Abe yeah. Saffron. Yeah. And then also the links with police too mm. in that sort of a network. Well, Sydney is a city where a Premier once resigned – well, it used to be once resigned over a bottle of wine. Um, yes, I know. I mean, you that could argue that bottle of Grange, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Although those <laughs> – guessing on the last 12 months uh, in New South Wales state politics, I think those days are quite long gone. Mm, but mm. Um, how how shocked were you when you came across – the fact that this went as, as as high up as the then Premier Neville ran at that time. Look, several interviewees had, you know, raised these rumours. Mm-hmm. And, they, you know, they were saying, I think this is probably my age as well, Caro, mm-hmm. you need to understand the time, you need mm-hmm. to understand the place. Mm-hmm. This is going to sound crazy. And Martin Sharp was onto this. So mm-hmm. I, I, we knew that from Martin Sharp, that mm-hmm. he believed this went right up from the police right up through the judiciary to mm-hmm. the Premier of the state, mm-hmm. Neville Rann, with this organised crime boss. And, you know, that's a massive claim. Mm-hmm. Really? Could that network exist? Really? Is the Premier mm. the most powerful person really in the state, certainly politically speaking, um, is doing a favour for the bloody head of the mob and mm. swinging a piece of land to Abe Saffron? Really? How could anyone possibly get away with that? Mm. But it was a different time mm. and there were a lot of people protecting each other. And some say, some some critics have said that, oh, you know, Neville Rand, that there, there, there's no evidence that Neville Rand was connected to Abe Saffron. Mm. Look, we have someone who saw them together and we've since been contacted by others who have too including an absolutely incredible story placing Abe Saffron and Neville Rand together at a particular event, an illegal event, right. which uh, I can't say too much more at the mm. moment. Mm. Um, but yeah, it certainly does seem that these connections were there. They existed and a special commission of inquiry was going down that path. They were ready to go on this allegation of connection between Lionel Murphy, Abe Saffron, Neville Rand and the Luna Park land back at this special commission of inquiry Mm. in 86. But Murphy died and so did the inquiry. And then the government locked up all of the documents for 30 years. So nothing was seen 
and hence could not be done about it, couldn't be investigated. I should, of course, mention that, that, that since the series has ended, a, a number of people have come out supporting Neville Rand publicly, uh, one of them being former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who, uh, full disclosure, was once, I believe, a, a business partner of, yeah. of, of Mr Rand's. Uh, how sure are you that the tragedy of the ghost train fire goes all the way to the top? Just because someone didn't see something or wasn't privy to something or wasn't in the room for something, just because you're someone's former acquaintance, business partner, Mm. staffer, just because you didn't see it or hear it, that actually doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It just means you might not have been there for it. So to be so confident on something that you were not there for and you did not hear, but to be so confident to say that it didn't happen, I'd like to see the evidence of that. If you can roll out all of the people who are serving drinks, get them on, find them all, talk to them. I mean, really, can you really confidently say that just because you didn't hear it or say it, that it didn't happen? It's like, you know, this might be a crazy, crazy comparison, but it was, you know, when I was doing an investigation into greyhound racing and there were these, I was interviewing, you know, very good trainers, decent trainers, and they were saying, no, live baiting doesn't exist, that terrible practice of Mm -hmm. blooding a dog with a live animal. It doesn't exist. It it doesn't exist. And I'd say, well, just because I don't do it. Well, just because you don't do it and you haven't seen it, does that mean it isn't happening? It's not happening. I know if it was happening. Well, here it bloody well is on camera. (laughs) there it is we found it it just means that you weren't there it just means you might not have been there so and I think that's a really important point to make that you know we're not out to assassinate characters and trot things out on camera that are baseless and uncorroborated we're there to tell people's stories and the people who were in the room at the time not to tell the stories of people who weren't there and had nothing to do with it and don't know anything about it you, you've got this very clear. I mean, it seems like you investigative journalism was was very much in your blood. Did you always know that you wanted to be? No, no, <laughs> no, not at all. I never thought I'd become a journalist. I've said it was, it was sort of really? accidental. Okay. I was very inspired by great journalism, um, but I didn't think it was my path. Right. I actually thought I was going to become an artist, a painter. So um, I could see that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I'm good enough. You've still got time. Uh, I, st- I st- do have time. We always have time. <laughs> um, but uh, it happened just when I was at university studying right. law and journalism and I popped over to the ABC to on a, one of their unpaid internships and uh, it just sort of snowballed from there. I absolutely mm. loved it. I really loved it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's storytelling but it's truth-telling and it's yeah. truth-seeking. And what a privilege to be able to sit down and – and hear people's stories and tell them and for them to let you into their home and for you to share their private and darkest moments and hear their most intimate, vulnerable, private stories and and them have you tell them and hopefully change some things for the better and educate some people and to give some people peace and give some people hope or change something for the better. I mean, I sound like an absolute, you know, bloody cornball saying this, but it's really true and that's 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 why I do it. Not to assassinate characters or roll out unsubstantiated stories. Mm. I just like to remind the critics who micro focus on Neville Ran 
that this is the opportunity here, and particularly one of those individuals, this is the opportunity here to get to the heart of the deaths of six children incinerated, alive, and a father. That is what we're talking about and the possible involvement of people in high places. And some of those critics know very well that people in high places can behave badly. They have been on them in the media recently speaking about very high-profile people behaving badly. Can you, end, can you have an open mind for this one? Test it. It could be wrong. But test it. Since the broadcast of Exposed, have new leads come up about the fire? And if if so, mm, what, mm, what mm. can you tell us? Yes, yes, they have. They have. Um, the leads are really more corroboration, mm-hmm. which is always as an investigative mm-hmm. journalist when more flows through that that's, that fits this, fits mm-hmm. fits all the facts that it, people are giving you. It's, ah, yes, ring-a-ding-ding. More witnesses that have come forward, Luna Park staffers, more witnesses who were there that night who rode the train, more sightings, hearings, things that people smelt. That's all just matching and fitting together. And and the unifying thing, the universal thing that everyone just keeps saying on that one point on the fire is we were never interviewed by police. Police never contacted us. Police just let us walk out that front gate, didn't take names and numbers. I've carried this for decades. I want everyone to know that other people in that program, they're right. I saw the same thing too. So that's coming through. And then there's some more material coming through about some of those high-level mm-hmm. machinations uh, around that area. You've really got to interrogate it before. You can air it, it could really. Just, yeah, yeah that's Because right, it could just be, you know, exaggerate. there's a lot of exaggerations. So you have mm. to work through all the embellishment to mm. yeah, the fact. Well, lastly, what now? And are you working on a new series of Exposed? Obviously, you're still following up on on, on leads from series two, as you've as you've mentioned. But uh, what are you looking ahead to? Sleeping, <laughs> um, sleeping, and I should just say, watch this space. Okay. There's follow ups, and there's looking ahead to something else that is on the boil. Certainly, but and that all sounds very vague and vague and totally frustrating. But you know, you can't get everything out of me. No, that's true. I've uh, definitely gotten all I can. You've been very generous with your time, Carrie Meldrum Hannah. Thank you for being on Fourth Estate. Thanks for having me. And if you missed Exposed, you can now watch all three episodes on ABC iView, as well as the very first series of Exposed, which uh, looks uh, delves into the Kelly Lane case. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Big thanks, as always, to my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. You can catch us next week on Fourth Estate. Thank you.